Good morning, everyone. Morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again, we are so thankful to call you our Father, and thank you for Jesus, and thank you for the truth of your word, and we ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts, and help us to be effective witnesses for you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements I want to remind people of January 17 to 19, the Power of Love training and equipping course. We have more than 280 people signed up, and it's going to be a really exciting and fun time in Dallas. It starts on Friday at noon and Sunday at noon. Meals are provided, and it's going to be a very uh, intimate time because we're going to have our meals together. We're going to have short presentations, short discussions. goal is to make you effective in sharing this, this message in your community. So we hope you'll sign up and come to that. All right, lesson uh, number seven in the quarterly Ezra Nehemiah, and the title is Our Forgiving God, Our Forgiving God. What is forgiveness? How would you define it? Forgiveness? Is God ever unforgiving? No. No. She's being a emphatic no, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Are we saved by God's forgiveness. Can anyone be saved without God's forgiveness? <laughs> See where I'm, I'm making you think a little bit this morning. Uh, did God forgive before or after Jesus died for us? Before or after Jesus committed himself to die for us, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, before he committed to die for us, did God, would God forgive before or after that? Before. Was Jesus' death necessary for God to forgive us? Yes. Is there a difference between God forgiving and our being forgiven? Is there a difference between God forgiving and our being forgiven? Yes. What's the difference? Accepting our choice. Accepting our choice. Those who crucified Christ, did Jesus forgive them? Yes. Did Jesus have the authority to forgive sins? Yes. Remember it said uh, when they lowered the paralytic down so that you might know that the Son of Man hath authority on earth to forgive sins, take up your bed and walk. So yes, he had authority to forgive sins. Jesus forgives them. Were they forgiven because Jesus forgave them? Or did they remain unforgiven despite being forgiven? Yes. Get your mind around this. See, many, you guys are thinking on a higher order because you understand they actually were forgiven by Jesus but remained unforgiven. It depends on the law lens you're looking through. We come back to this over and over. It's practical application of how reality works. What law lens? If the law lens you look through is the human law lens, like this courtroom here, a system of rules made up that requires judicial oversight and enforcement, then if the judge, the one with legal authority, pardons the accused, the criminal, the wrongdoer, and they're pardoned by the judge, then they're no longer under legal condemnation of the law. The state or the government has no authority now to punish, and thus they are forgiven and set free. Isn't that how the human law system works? But if the law's design law is something required beyond forgiveness 
from the creator of the universe, something beyond the creator forgiving in order for us to be saved. There's something beyond his forgiving us that's required. Well, if your child disobeys your rules and plays in the street and gets hit by a car or drinks some toxins you told them never to touch, and and they're either place on the ground suffering and in a state of dying, will you forgive your child? Will your forgiveness save them? No, not necessarily. Is something more needed besides your forgiveness? Does the sinner, in addition to being forgiven by God, also need to be healed, transformed, renewed, recreated, reborn, set right? Which means, set right, by the way, means justified. That's what justification is. Setting right, healing, renewing, transforming. Does the sinner, in addition to forgiveness, need that to happen within the heart and mind of the sinner? Yes or no? Yes. So would this mean, then, the sinner not only needs to be forgiven by God, but they need to open their heart and experience the forgiveness from God, which then leads them to repentance and surrender and trust to God for healing and restoration? Did I confuse you and lose you with that? Or we, we all together still? That's the biblical, real biblical definition of forgiveness is not an attitudinal um, stance from God of forgiveness or God extending forgiveness. That doesn't constitute biblical forgiveness. That's a given. That's an automatic. God is always forgiving. The biblical forgiveness is the actual experience of the person surrendering to and partaking of what's extended that is then leading them into a trust relationship where they are healed and restored or reconciled to God. That's the real definition. We miss that because we are so conditioned to the human law lens that we think it's legal transaction. It's not. That's a corruption. So 1 John 1, nine says... If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Or consider this historic quote from uh, E.G. White in the book Prayer, page 298. See if you agree or disagree. But forgiveness has a broader meaning than many suppose. When God gives the promise that he will abundantly pardon, he adds as if the meaning of that promise exceeded all that we could comprehend. This is what he adds. Quoting out of Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's what he adds to the idea for, uh, of, of abundantly pardoning. And she says, uh, forgiveness has a broader meaning than what we suppose, because uh, he adds something. Now, what do you think this is referring to, this ways not being like our ways? What are our laws like? They're rules that require you to... But his ways aren't like ours. Um, He's the creator. His laws are the protocols of reality. Doesn't require legal enforcement. So if I'm right in, in, in believing that this text in Isaiah is referring to God's ways, his methods, his designs, are not like the ways that we run things. He runs things on the protocols of reality. We run things on rules that we have to punish. If I'm right in that, what do you think might follow in the quote? The person who just quoted this will listen what, what comes next. God's forgiveness is not merely a judicial act by which he sets us free from from condemnation. It is not only forgiveness for sin, but reclaiming from sin. It is the outflow of redeeming love that transforms the heart. David had the true conception of forgiveness when he prayed, 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is biblical forgiveness, that we realize God was never against us. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. And who came after them? Who came after them in the garden? God came after them. Did he come after them with a stick to make sure justice was enforced? No. No. Who stood between Adam and Eve to intercede on their behalf to protect them from the judge who would enforce the law? Who was there? No one. This whole penal legal thing is a lie. They had a condition now which put them out of harmony with life. They were no longer in harmony with God's design. God forgave them, but they're like the kid who drank poison. They're dying. They're dead in trespass and sin. They have a terminal condition. And God is already forgiving toward them. And so he seeks them out to let them know, I still love you, but what have you done? Who told you you're naked? You didn't hear that from me. I'm not pointing this out to you, but it's your own conscience. You've changed yourself. You're different. You're not at peace in heart anymore. You're fearful. You're running. You're willing to, to, to turn your back on your spouse on Eve and throw her under the bus and, in order to protect yourself. You're selfish now. I didn't do this to you, but I've got a solution for you. I've got a remedy. Bible forgiveness must be understood in the lens of design law, fixing what's actually broken. God's personal heart attitude is always forgiveness, guys. Always, always, always forgiveness. The sacrifice of Christ was not designed to induce forgiveness in God or to make a legal loophole for God to be able to forgive. Well, yeah, he had a forgiving heart. You'll hear this. Oh, yeah, God's love. I believe that. Oh, yeah, he's got a forgiving heart. That's for sure. But he still couldn't forgive us unless Jesus paid the penalty. And so he had to pay the penalty so God was allowed to do what he wanted to do and forgive us because legality is required. Somebody had to pay the penalty. A legal loophole. No, it was not a legal loophole. It was the method whereby God's love and forgiveness could enter back into the species human to recreate, restore, and heal and fix the damage of what Adam and Eve did to the species. Consider this next quote and see if you can unpack it. And I want to prepare your mind because this next quote is a really interesting quote. The first half, many of us from our class would love to share with people. The last half, opponents of our class will love to share with people. And so I'm going to read the quote to you, specifically to ask, uh, do you have a way of explaining the whole quote for those who would want to use it to say what we're teaching isn't right, that there's, it's actually penal legal? It's not only that God is love, but penal legal things had to happen in order for salvation to take place. Here's the quote. This is out of um, Signs of the Times, May 30, 1895. The atonement of Christ was not made in order to induce God to love those whom he otherwise hated, It was not made to produce a love that was not in existence, but it was made as a manifestation of the love that was already in God's heart. You hear the point. The first point is, well, it goes on to to, uh, an exponent of divine favor in the sight of heavenly intelligence in the unfallen worlds. And she quotes now this text we all know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only. Notice what came. God so loved the world, so his love led to an action. He gave his only begotten son. It's not his only begotten son loved us and then went and gave his sacrifice to the father to get the father to love us. That's not reality. So in making the point, God's love is for us and he provides his son. And if you read John three seventeen, he came in the world not to condemn the world, it says, but to save it. So God loved us so much that he sent his son as the means to fix the problem 
for our salvation. Continue with the quote. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We are not to entertain the idea that God loves us because Christ has died for us, but that he so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. Do you see the difference? The death of Christ was expedient in order that mercy might reach us with its full pardoning power. Okay. That's that first. Everybody loved the first part I've read so far. Now put your thinking cap on because I want you to imagine you're sitting at lunch this afternoon with somebody you want to share this beautiful message with, but they have been stuck in the penal legal view and, and, and they read this quote to you and they say, now, what do you have to say about this? So I want your answers. What are you going to tell them? Here, here we go. Continuing on with, with the quote. That mercy might reach us with its full pardoning power and at the same time that justice might be satisfied in a righteous substitute. The glory of God was revealed in the rich mercy that he poured out upon the race of rebels who through repentance and faith might be pardoned through the merits of Christ. For God will by no means clear the guilty who refuse to acknowledge the merit of a crucified and risen Savior. It is only through faith in Christ that sinners may have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, and that they may be made the righteousness of of God in him. Our sins were laid on Christ, punished in Christ, put away in Christ, in order that his righteousness might be imputed to us who walk not after um, flesh, but after the Spirit. Although sin was charged to his account on our behalf, yet he remained perfectly sinless. It's a strong statement. Yeah, okay, strong statement. So how do you answer this to the person? You loved the first part, didn't you? Is this second part clear to you? Yes. Good. So what's the first question you must ask if you don't want to go down the wrong trail when you hear stuff like this? Before you even start interpreting, first question, you have to anchor yourself in a certain worldview. What's the first thing you have to remind yourself of? You're both saying it. They're both saying design law. What law lens am I looking through? If I try to understand any Bible, any uh, Christian commentator, whatever they're trying to say, if I'm understanding it through the idea that God's law functions like human law, you will end up in a wrong universe. You will end up in a universe where God looks like Satan character. That's where you end up. God will be the enforcer. God will be the source of pain. God will be the source of suffering. God will need someone to plead to him so he won't kill you. That's where it always ends up. You will end up in places where they will teach that God used his power to kill Jesus on the cross because justice required that God hold the sinner accountable and our sins were placed on Jesus, so therefore God had to kill Jesus. That's where it goes. And I will tell you, every denominational group has writings in that denomination that teach what I just said. I've I've given you those references in the past. That's where the human law model takes you when you interpret this kind of stuff through that. Design law, though, uh, now, that same quote, we're not going to throw any of it out, but we we must be able to understand how reality works. What's this language mean in the context of design law? So once you anchor in your design law, then go back and ask the questions. Okay, under design law, is there punishment for sin? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely there's punishment for sin. Absolutely. What is the punishment for sin under design law? Define it. What is it? Natural result. It's death. Uh, Ultimately, is it immediate death or is there actually a, a gradation of punishment that grows and leads ultimately to death? So pain, suffering, guilt, shame, heartache, separation from God, and ultimately death, an eternal death. This is the punishment for sin. 
So the next question, from where does the punishment come? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. How about James chapter 1.5, sin when full grown brings forth death. How about Galatians 6.8, those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. So, So here's just three quick Bible texts. If we use those Bible texts, under design law, do we believe there's punishment for sin? Ultimately, the ultimate punishment is eternal non-existence, death. And from where does the Bible say the punishment comes? Sin. Comes from sin. Well, next question. What is the power, then, that inflicts the punishment? Design law. You got it. She says law. Design law. You see, that's what it says in Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. It says, the power of sin is the law. What? What does this mean? The power of sin is the law. Well, where does the power come that causes pain, suffering, and death for somebody who jumps off the Empire State Building? Where does the power come from that? From the law. Where does the power come that kills somebody who puts 50-pound weights on each ankle and jumps in the ocean? Where does the power come that kills them? The law of respiration. And gravity. Gravity, too. But, but in that context, it's actually not gravity. They're not dying from gravity. They're dying from not being able to breathe. Where does the power to ruin someone's health and ultimately result in death come from for somebody who smokes a pack of cigarettes every day? Violations of the laws of health. Understand, design law. Can you have health in violations of the laws of health? Does God, get, does God uh, have to have a trial and say, well, you smoke so many cigarettes, therefore you lose, lose so many alveoli in your lungs. We're going to take that many alveoli away and we're going to re- reduce your um, uh, oxygen uh, carrying capacity by 37% so you won't be able to walk quite as fast as you used to. Um, because you've, but if you smoke two more cigarettes, I was going to have to reduce it by 43%. I mean, is that how it works? That's human law model. It's a lie. God is the creator. Breaking his laws injure those who break them. So, the power to kill from sin comes from being out of harmony with the laws that God built life to operate upon. So how does then God reconcile, how is God reconciled, how does God reconcile us to himself? Well, here's a quote. Sons and daughters of God, page 293. God reconciles uh, us to himself by the work and merit of Jesus Christ, who put aside everything that would interpose between man and God's pardoning love. The law that was the law that man has transgressed is not changed to meet the sinner in his fallen condition. Pause right there. Why? Because it's the law of life. The protocols... Ah, it'd be like saying the law of respiration cannot be changed to meet a drowning man underwater. We, can, we don't change the law and say suddenly um, human life doesn't require oxygen. No, it does. That's how God built it. The person must be put back in harmony with the law. The law is not changed to meet the person living out of harmony with it. Do you see the difference? 
The law is not changed to meet a sinner in his fallen condition, but is made manifest as the transcript of Jehovah's character, an exponent of his holy will. What is his character? God is love. And all of his laws, design protocols, are built for our health, for our welfare, for our good, for, for our happiness. They always lead to our autonomy, our freedom, our restoration. That's always an expression of love his holy will, and is exalted and magnified in the life and character of Jesus Christ. Yet a way of salvation is provided, for the spotless Son of God is revealed as the one who takes away the sin of the world. Remember, John Baptist said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away. Notice what he doesn't take away. Punishment of sin. The Lamb of God who took my punishment so that I don't have to suffer punishment. This is what is often taught, that he came to take away punishment. He didn't. He came to actually take away sin itself. Take away the defect. Take away the disease. Take away the corruption. Take away the deviation from God's design. To put the human race back in harmony. Jesus stands in the sinner's place and takes the guilt of the transgressor upon himself. Looking upon the sinner's substitute in surety, the Lord Jehovah can be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. So, if your child, think what that means, just. What does it mean to be just? What law lends, remember, always jump back, just, because we are so conditioned in the human definition of justice. Anybody heard about justice being brought to somebody named El Baghdadi this week? It was all over the news, and you heard, he was brought to justice. That's human justice. And what is human justice? Inflicting punishment. That's human justice. So your child, uh, and so when you hear words like just and justice, justice is defined by what? How do you define what's right or just? The law. The law defines it. So in baseball, excuse me, in boxing, it's just to punch somebody in the face. In baseball, it's unjust to punch somebody in the face. The the law defines what's just and unjust. So they have to come back again. How do I understand the law? God's law, like human law, system of rules, then justice is God punishing, or God's law, design law? Yes? Very interesting. So, speaking of justice, and, like, kids in school, what do you think of the concept of restorative justice? Right, so in the human law model, there's this idea of um, punitive justice, where we have to uphold the law, so we must inflict punishment to make sure people pay the price for their crime, versus the idea of restorative justice, where we take people and we try to restore them to live in harmony with a healthy society. So we want to restore in them principles and values. The restorative justice is consistent with the biblical law model. That's the Bible view. And if you look at Old Testament justice, it was always about restoring people who have been wronged and also restoring the wrongdoer to become reconciled, to be friends. So biblical justice was delivering the oppressed in Old Testament times. You read it. Helping the the widow, helping the orphan, uh, providing for the people who've been taken advantage of, setting slaves free. It's always about delivering the oppressed, not punishing the oppressor. So it's restorative justice. That's the biblical model. That's right. So, so, So then... A very example you can relate to, we talked about, your child has disobeyed you and drank poison. And your child is dying. What is the just or right thing for you to do? If you do justice, what will you do for that child? Agency majors. You provide remedy and save them. You don't get out, wait wait a minute, they disobeyed, you don't get your belt out and beat them? uh, Somebody has to be punished, right? No, the just thing to do under design law is to save them. And that's the difference between God's law and human law. 
So how were our sins? So back to that quote I read. We're, we're first laying a foundation so you can understand how reality works. Design law. What the punishment for sin is. What justice actually is in God's view. And then you can understand what was written there. So how were our sins punished in Christ? Which is the language. Punished in Christ. Galatians 6.8 Those who sow to the carnal nature This is Bible, guys, not me. From that nature, reap destruction. Did Jesus take upon himself human nature? So where did the punishment come from, from Jesus? From his father or from the nature he took upon himself? It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become, not be declared, become the righteousness of God. Did Jesus suffer in his humanity? Did he? From where did his suffering come? Did it come from God, God the Father using power to cause suffering upon Jesus? Or did it come from the human nature that he took upon himself? And also from evil people at the instigation of evil angels? But in Gethsemane, before the evil people did anything, was he suffering? Where did that suffering come from? Was the Father doing something to him? Human nature. Now, putting the design law, how reality works together, I want you to understand a couple of things. Why did God separate himself from Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Many see this as an, a dissatisfaction on the Father's part. When he took our sins upon him, the Father was outraged. The Father couldn't stand the ugliness of sin. The Father was, was, was wrathful and angry and had to back off, because not because of Jesus himself, but because the sin was so horrible. You've heard this kind of stuff, right? It's all a lie. Understand how reality works. Do you know why? Jesus spent three days away from Lazarus when Lazarus was sick. He didn't go sooner. He, he hung back for three days. Why? There's a reason. If you value Ellen White, Ellen White says the reason. His presence would have healed him. His presence would have healed Lazarus, and Lazarus would not have died. And Jesus allowed Lazarus to fall into that first death for a specific purpose, to glorify Jesus, and so Jesus had power over death. This was a, and Lazarus was such a friend that he said, it's okay, I'll fall asleep for you for a few days. You can wake me back up in a few days. He might not fully have understood, but he still trusted Jesus through the whole process. The point being is, death doesn't happen in the presence of the source of life. There has to be a disconnect. So, do you think Jesus could have died on the cross if the Father didn't let him go? No, no. Could Jesus have finished his mission to fix the problem that Adam caused if he doesn't die? No. So do you see that at the cross, you have complete harmony in the Godhead? That the Father and Son are in complete cooperation to achieve a joint mission. In the joint mission, God so loved the world that he gave his own. The Father was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. This was a joint operation. There was no division here. But God let him go so that he could accomplish what the two of them together, and the Holy Spirit also, of course, 
wanted to accomplish the fix for the sin problem. And that's why. So you don't see Jesus saying, my God, my God, why are you punishing me for sin? My God, my God, why are you raining fire down from heaven to torture me for sin? Why are you letting me go? Why have you given me up? That's his humanity, agonizing. Jesus took upon himself our terminal condition and was tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 2.14. Thus, being tempted in every way just like we are, yet without sin, and we are tempted when we're dragged away and enticed by our own desires, James chapter 1. So in Gethsemane, you see the human nature causing him agony as it's tempting him to act in self-interest. Save yourself, save yourself. And you see on the cross, in the gospel accounts, repeatedly people came up to priests, people in the street, whoever was there, come down off the cross, save yourself, and we'll believe in you. It's constant temptation to act in self-interest. But every time temptation comes, Jesus says, no one can take my life. I lay it down freely. This was not an act of suicide. He did not kill himself. He didn't act to end his own life. He acted not to use his power to save his own life. There's a difference. He didn't act to use power in self-preserving or self-promoting ways. This is the core of Satan's kingdom. And thus, he destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light. 2 Timothy 1.10. How did he destroy death? Because he destroys the very principles that cause death. Fear and selfishness. In the humanity he assumed, rewrote God's perfect, other-centered law of love back into the humanity he assumed. And thus, Hebrew says in 5.8, once he was, this is a quote, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him, unquote. Made perfect? Wasn't he always perfect? No, he was always sinless. Bible perfection is not sinlessness. Bible perfection is maturity of character. Character cannot be created by God. God can create sinless beings, angels in heaven, Adam and Eve in Eden. But those sinless beings then exercise their power of choice to develop their character. Adam and Eve corrupted their character, and no human being descended of Adam and Eve could fix that corruption. Christ became sin, took upon himself the condition, tempted in every way just like we are, for the purpose of exercising human capacities and human abilities to restore in the humanity he assumed, thus he becomes the second head of humanity, the second Adam, God's perfect design of love, God's perfect law of love. So is there a punishment for sin? And it's separation from God which leads to death? Did Jesus experience separation from God? Yes, he did. But why didn't Christ die eternally then? You understand there's a difference between Christ's death at the cross and the death of the wicked in the end. Many people will allege that Christ died the second death. They use that language. I know what they're trying to say, but they don't understand reality. What is, by definition, the second death? A death from which there's no resurrection is one way to say it. An eternal death, a death of annihilation. Eternal separation from God, that's another way to say it. There's multiple ways to say it. But the second death, is it a death in which your individuality is retained or your individuality is destroyed and gone from existence? Well, when Jesus rose into heaven, what did the angels say about him? This same Jesus. Okay? Okay? Jesus is the same. So... He died, so the Father, here's the deal, guys. The Father treated Jesus on the cross in the same way he treats the wicked in the end. He sets both free to experience what they choose. And Jesus chose 
to be our Savior, to go through the cross, to suffer the weight of guilt and agony, to be separate from his Father, to die in our place for the purpose of, in Jesus, having chosen to love perfectly, Jesus' death eliminated the, the, the infection of fear and selfishness, and he rises on the third day, and humanity cleansed from sin. The wicked in the end, the Father also sets them free, separates from them, lets them have their choice. And what is their choice? Eternal separation. Eternal separation and non-existence in a character corrupted by sin. So Jesus' death occurs when love overcomes selfishness. The wicked die overcome by selfishness. And God treats them both the same. He gives them the result of what they've chosen. He gives them freedom. Do you see the difference? Design law clears up these confusions. So is there a punishment for sin? Yes, separation from, from God. Did Christ suffer the weight of agony and guilt in Gethsemane? Did he suffer the separation and the breaking up of his connection with his father? And why was it so much more profound? Well, think of the person's or person in this world that you love the most. Your spouse, your child. What would it be like for you to be separated from them? To have them die even. Versus El Baghdadi, who died this week. How, how much did you grieve that? How hard was that on you? Why didn't that hurt you? Why weren't you crying on the floor? Because they weren't very close to you. He wasn't very close. Who do you think has the closest, deepest intimacy with the Father? Who will agonize the most if that's broken up? It's an infinite connection. We really can't appreciate the depth of agony it caused Christ to have that connection break up, even for the briefest amount of time. It's beyond our, it's really, it's an infinite loss that they went through. So is there a punishment for sin? Yes. Now, what are the merits of Christ? What are the merits? What does merit mean? It's simply, in this case, the perfection of Christ's character. That's, that's what merits are. What he achieved. What he merited by his actions, which is the perfect human nature. Does somebody have a hand up? So why will God not clear the guilty? Still working on that difficult comp. But do you notice how we're working on it? It requires an understanding of reality. It requires design law. It requires having a knowledge of other, other facts and points and understandings of how reality works. But if you do, this stuff doesn't throw you. Why will God not clear the guilty? Are you thinking what law lends? Under imposed law, well, because he has to uphold the law. Under design law, it would be like this. It is simply saying the doctor will by no means say the sick are healthy. They either accept the remedy and are actually cured back to health, or they reject the remedy and remain terminal. But the physician will in no wise say the terminal are healthy. They're terminal. Let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That's what he does. It's the reality of the condition. So what about the imputed righteousness of Christ? This is a big one. It's a big, fancy term. You get this a lot, and the legal people will say, the imputed righteousness of Christ is where in the heavenly court's legal system, God declares you and imputes to you into your record book and your legal account the righteousness of Christ, and you are treated and accounted as if you're righteous, even though you're not. It's imputed to your record and your, and your accounting. 
But the imparted righteousness of Christ, that's what you experience that transforms and heals you. It's the imputed that is a legal accounting, whereas the imparted is the transforming. What do you say when they pull that one on you? You say, read more widely. Read some more. Read some more from the person whose quote we were reading that said through the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? We read that quote, imputed righteousness of Christ. So why don't we let that same author tell, tell us how she used that word so we can understand what she meant since she used that word in a variety of ways. Here's a couple of quotes. That I may know him, page 206. The Father would have us comprehend something of his love in giving his son to die that, we might, that he might counteract evil, remove the defiling stains of sin from the workmanship of God. What's the workmanship of God? We keep going with the quote. And reinstate the lost, elevating and ennobling the soul to its original purity through Christ's imputed righteousness. Did you hear how it's used here? His imputed righteousness elevates and ennobles your soul, removing defiling stains from the workmanship of God. Not from a legal accounting, heavenly record system. Here's another one. You might say, well, that's a one-off. She was having a bad day. She was a little confused that day. It was late at night. Bless her heart. Bless her heart, yeah. So, so maybe, maybe she just, you know, she, got, she, she meant to write imparted, and she just was tired and write imputed. Okay. One, one vowel. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just, it's just a little bit. Yeah. You'll hear stuff like that. Next quote, Amazing Grace, page 96. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That's Second uh, Corinthians uh, 3.18. What law is being described there, guys? It's a design law. Which one? That's the law of worship. By beholding. We become changed. We become like the God we admire and worship. Keep going. Beholding Christ means studying his life as given in his word. We are to dig for truth as hidden treasure. We are to fix our eyes upon Christ. We are, uh, when we take him as our personal savior, this gives us boldness to approach the throne of grace. By beholding, we become changed, morally assimilated to the one who is perfect in character. By receiving his imputed righteousness through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like him. Where is the imputed righteousness again here? Well, this, this, yeah, yeah, but where's the action happening? In a record book, in a legal? It's imputed to your account. God declares you to be righteous in a courtroom in heaven, etc. No, it's inside you. By receiving the imputed righteousness the transforming power of the Holy Spirit, we become like Christ. Here's another one, Amazing Grace 181. Abundant grace has been provided that the believing soul may be kept free from sin. For all heaven, with its limitless resources, has been placed at our command. We are to draw from the well of salvation. In ourselves we are sinners, but in Christ we are righteous, having made us righteous through the imputed righteousness of christ god pronounces us just and treats us as just because we are just because we're changed we're renewed our hearts have been transformed notice abraham trusted god and was recognized accounted declared to be righteous what's the natural state of the human sinful heart after adam sinned according to romans the human heart is an enmity with god it's against him. It doesn't trust him. Abraham trusted God. Notice, 
That heart's not an enmity anymore. That heart's not against God anymore. That heart has been set right or put right. That's called justification. So Abraham's heart was changed or set right or put right. And after Abraham's heart was changed, then God recognized him as being righteous or set right or justified because he was. This whole legal thing that's taught in Christianity cheats people out of the transforming experience of having a new heart and right spirit. One more quote. Our high calling, uh, 364. We aim too low. Yeah, you know why? Because we aim for a legal accounting and a record book in heaven. That's what we aim for. We aim too low. The mark is much higher. Our minds need expansion that we may comprehend the significance of the provision of God. We are to reflect the highest attributes of the character of God. We are to reflect that. The law of God is the exalted standard to which we are to attain through the imputed righteousness of Christ. What does attain mean? What's an attainment? Something that you assimilate. It becomes part of you. Do you understand how the Christian world and the Adventist world has been cheated through this penal legal lie? Well, I'm declared to be righteous even though I'm not. There's no transforming. Oh, yeah, you're supposed to live a better life. But that's not really part of the salvation. I mean, that, that's just, you know, something you're supposed to... But it doesn't really matter because you're declared righteous and your sins were already punished in Jesus, past, present, and future, all laid on Christ and punished. Do you notice if we understand design law and we read widely that the reality of that first quote becomes very clear and Satan's legal lie is exposed and we see that God was in the Son reconciling the world to himself and that Christ achieved the cure, the remedy, and provides it freely for all of us. As something we actually experience when we trust him and open our hearts. This is not a legal accounting in a book or declaring something to be one way, which is actually some other way. I actually had conversations with some theologians and, and they said, you know, um, justification is when God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. And I said, oh, so you're saying God's lying. He's saying that I'm righteous even when I'm not righteous. So he's saying something is, it's not really that way. They got really upset with me. <laughs> They really did. They got agitated. No, no, no. He's allowed to do it because Jesus' life stands in our place. So you're saying God doesn't have very good discernment skills. So he looks at Jesus, but he can't see through Jesus. So Jesus is kind of like um, magic, uh, you know, um, a shield. So, so he, God doesn't really know my true condition as long as Jesus is standing there. Is that what you're saying? They didn't like that either. <laughs> no. Second Corinthians... He who knew sin became sin for us so that we might become. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. He takes out the heart of stone, puts on the heart of flesh. He has circumcised the heart by the Spirit. He writes the law in our hearts and minds. This is reality. Do we have a forgiving God? Absolutely. But we have a God who does much more than simply forgive. He provides remedy to heal and to restore. Now, have you heard this popular idea? I've been in some seminars and uh, on, a, on the discussion panel after our presentations, and this has come up, where people will say, well, forgiveness costs the person who does the forgiving, and it costs God to forgive us. God paid a high price to forgive us. This kind of language. True or false? False. It's a lie. It's based on that imperial law model. The idea is a distortion of reality based on accepting the imposed law lie. God's law functions like human law. 
Sin requires punishment be inflicted. In order for justice uh, to occur, and God could not be just without inflicting punishment, therefore God, in order to be just, had to uh, provide someone to be punished in our place, and he punished Jesus in our place, and once he punished Jesus in our place, then he was legally able to forgive. So it cost God a lot to forgive because uh, he had to take the punishment. That's what they're saying if you actually think it through. No, none of that's true. God's forgiveness was free and immediate, but his personal forgiveness did not provide remedy to our condition. It wasn't God's forgiveness that cost God. It was because God so loved the world and God forgave the world and chose to save the world that he chose to fix the damage and solve the problem and heal the condition that sin caused and thus provided Jesus to be the remedy. And it was the remedy and the fix to the condition that cost God so much. Yes? That's basically what I was going to say. It would have cost God emotionally because he loved his son and to see him suffer and to see him him die and pass and be treated the way that he was would cause him suffering yes it cost him but not to forgive to cure he forgave instantly i forgive you think about this parents one of your kids drinks uh, uh you know ethylene glycol antifreeze kills the kidneys they go into renal failure they're going to die. You donate a kidney to save them. And you save them. Did it cost you something? Did you pay a price to forgive them or to save them? Could you have forgiven them without giving them the kidney? But would your forgiveness save them? The cost was not in the forgiveness. The cost was in the salvation, the healing, the fixing. And only design law gets you there. When you're under the imperial model, it's all conflated. In the imperial model, the problem is God is the judicial magistrate. You're under condemnation of the law. God holds you accountable. God inflicts the penalty. If God restrains himself and doesn't inflict the penalty, there's no penalty for sin. And therefore, the problem is we have to be forgiven by the magistrate. So somebody has to pay the legal penalty. And so the, 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 the cost is in the forgiveness. That's all fraudulent. No, the forgiveness is free. The cost is in the cure. In the remedy, that's design law. Sunday's lesson, <laughs> Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3, describes how Israelites humbled themselves and repented with sackcloth and ashes and separated themselves from all foreigners. Why? What is going on? What is the purpose? And as we've talked in many lessons here recently, not only is uh, ancient Israel in the Bible historical people doing real historical stuff recorded in a historically accurate way, but it's also object lesson. I won't go through all the examples to prove it today because we've done that in the last several lessons. But there's an object lesson, a bigger lesson being taught. They're acting out in theater the plan of salvation. What's the object lesson for us today? Are we to humble ourselves and confess our sinfulness and our need for healing and to separate ourselves from the influences of the world and the attachments of sin and from selfishness so that God can use us and bring us into his kingdom? Are we to do that? There's an object lesson in what they were doing for us. Does this mean, then, that we don't minister to people and try to bring them into God's kingdom because we're separating from them? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we don't bond with them. We don't make them part of the tribe, part of the family, the trusted ones. We don't allow them who are not reborn into Christ's kingdom to be part of the mission team until they are reborn into Christ's kingdom. That's what it means. But we go out actively and try to recruit more and more recruits to be reborn into the kingdom. Why did God have them build a wall? Not just the temple, a wall. Have you heard anybody about wanting to build a wall lately? 
Why did God have them build a wall? Was it cruel and uncaring for them to build a wall that would separate people not of their nation from the people of their nation? Was it cruel? Weren't there people outside the wall who could have benefited from all the resources inside the city? Was it selfish of them to build the wall? It was necessary. A lack of compassion. Was it a violation of human rights to build this wall? What was the purpose of the wall? Was it to allow God's agents to organize, reconstitute, create an effective team, gather resources, produce disciples, grow in godliness, become a bastion of holiness in order to minister to the world and help millions? Wasn't that the purpose? So the wall was not designed to keep the world out uh, of the blessings of God. It was designed for his team to be able to organize, to be lights to the world, to bring the world the blessings of God. But as many people have been helped by Israel if they did not build the wall? No, that, not, not at all. That wall was necessary. Why, why would their effectiveness have been undermined if they didn't build the wall? They would have been diluted, just like ten tribes became diluted and were lost. By the time Christ came, there were only two tribes left. Because they assimilated so much with the culture of the world, they lost their vision, their focus, their mission, their purpose. Is there a lesson for us today? Well, first rule of a caregiver, if anybody's in a caregiving role, first rule for caregivers is the health of the caregiver. A farmer who refuses to eat any food because he wants to give all that he has to the starving peoples of the world, so he doesn't eat one meal a day, and only be selfish, and won't take anything for self, feeds nobody because he starves to death. First rule, doctors at Pearl Harbor, at the day in December 7, 1941, as the thousands of, of injured were coming to the hospitals, needing blood transfusions, why did the doctors not give blood? And they didn't. The doctors didn't donate blood. Why didn't they donate a pint, two, three pints of blood? They wouldn't have died. But what would have happened if they'd have given each three pints of blood? Would they have been able to continue the work they were doing? Or would they have saved more or less if they would have done that? Oh, those selfish doctors. These people are bleeding to death. You won't give blood? You selfish people. There's a point I'm making. Do you see the point? First rule of caregiving. You can't help people if you incapacitate yourself. What about a A nation that establishes a border wall today? Could it be done out of selfishness because the people and or leadership of that nation don't care about anybody but themselves and don't care about the suffering in the world? They just want all the riches and wealth for themselves. Could it be done for that reason? Yes. But could it also be done by a caring people who realize that they have a responsibility to help the less fortunate, to help the peoples of the world? They want to establish, therefore, a healthy, sustainable uh, economy, society, resources uh, as possible so they have more and more to share with the world. Is that also possible? Can you tell just because somebody wants to build a wall, which their motives are? When God had Israel build its wall, was God doing this so Israel could hide behind its walls, ignore all the suffering in the world, and simply become enriched amongst themselves and unto themselves? Is that why? No. And there's so much judgmentalism going on in the world today. People don't see grace and see the necessity of how reality works. Compassionate people, I can't tell how many families I see, where the compassionate person who can't build a wall, set a boundary, causes more injury. Did you see anybody see the, or read the true story, see the movie, A Miracle Worker, about Helen Keller? 
And if you've never seen the movie or read the story, you should. This mother of Helen Keller had tremendous love and compassion for Helen. Don't question that for a second. Deep, abiding love for her child who was deaf, dumb, and blind. And wouldn't take any action that would add to her suffering. Therefore, never set any boundaries, never put any expectations on her, never held her accountable. Annie Sullivan comes along, the child, I don't know, is 10 years old by this time. The child's a wild child. Annie Sullivan begins, uh, first says, I can't help this child until I separate her from her mother. And then she starts setting boundaries, and they start... They start in a war of wills, so to speak, and just to get her to hold a spoon or a fork to eat with rather than just grabbing food with her hand, if you remember the scenario. And back and forth they went, and eventually um, Helen Keller slaps Annie, and Annie immediately slapped her back. What do you think would happen in today's society with all the do-gooders we have? <laughs> I call them do-gooders because they, they, they have no understanding of reality. They think they're doing it, but they always need to, they need to do good in somebody else's life. They cross boundaries constantly. They already want to tell everybody else how their life should be lived. But what do you think would happen today if a deaf, dumb, and blind girl's um, you know, state counselor, educator, slapped her like that? That person would be arrested and put in jail. And what would happen to Helen Keller? What did happen to Helen Keller? She learned to listen, and she was very bright. And she was taught sign language, and then she was taught Braille. She eventually got a college education. She, be, she wrote books. She became very successful. What opened the door for that for her? Love. Love as evidenced in accountability, not uh, emotionalism or tenderness. Some people don't understand that the loving thing to do is to set boundaries that can appear to be harsh. But it's not if you understand how reality works. Many people don't understand reality. They just see the crying child. Oh, poor thing. Oh, how could you hurt that child? It's really sick. Christ had great tenderness and compassion, but he kept firm boundaries and healthy boundaries. He held people accountable. He spoke, he spoke firm words. He spoke truth, but always in love. So these walls that God had Nehemiah built were not for them to hide from the world and to simply hoard their wealth but for them to organize and create a bastion, a center, from which they can go out and minister. And their goal and their mission was to prepare the world for the Messiah so that all would be blessed. It was an act of love, not an act of selfishness. Now, they were to separate from people not of Israel. Does that mean that they had to separate from everybody who wasn't a genetic descendant of Israel? Is that what it meant? No, the other aspect of this was people who were not just genetic descendants of Israel could become part of Israel. And they didn't have to be sent away. But to be part of Israel, they had to assimilate. They had to accept the God of Israel. They had to accept the customs of Israel. The men had to be circumcised. All these different things. If you're going to be part of Israel, you assimilate and and join the tribe. And you didn't have to go away. The ones they sent away were the ones who wanted to live in Israel but didn't want to be part, didn't want to assimilate, wanted to have their own culture. They wanted to put up their own language. They wanted their kids to be educated not in in the language of Hebrew but some other language. They, they, They wanted their own street signs. Their own gods. Their own gods. Exactly right. Was Israel called into existence to be a model for how earthly governments should run? I, I didn't hear an answer. Was Israel called into existence to be a model for how earthly governments should run? No. No. They were not called into existence to be a model for earthly governments. They were called into existence to be an avenue for the Messiah and to be evangelists of God's kingdom. That was their mission. Not to say, this is how I want all earthly governments to operate. No, it wasn't so. Does the United States government 
its constitution run on the same design as Israel? Have you ever read anybody that said that the United States government was, was blessed of God and it was organized by God and God has his hands over the, the founding documents? Have you ever read that? Well, it's true. These founding documents were a godly thing. Bible prophesies the rise of the United States coming into power. You know this. It's part of God's plan. But it's certainly not modeled after Israel. Yes? The difference is that Israel was the only theocracy. Uh, for about, what, 30 years, 40 years? And then they wanted kings, and they were no longer a theocracy. Brief period of time, maybe. I don't know exactly how many. Don't quote me on the number of years. I was just throwing a number out. It was completely arbitrary and, was probably, and certainly wrong. So, in other words, do we err by taking lessons from God's book and applying them in a concrete way to the church and the state today? Do we err by trying to get the state to apply our understanding of the Bible, the church and state organizing. Is that, a, is that a godly thing or is that a, an ungodly thing? This is an interesting quote because I, I get a lot of pushback. I put this stuff out there and people email me. Well, just think, consider this quote. It's out of an interesting book called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, page 126. When men indulge this unaccusing spirit, they are not satisfied with pointing out what they suppose to be a defect in their brother. If milder means fail to make him do what they think ought to be done, they will resort to compulsion. Just as far as lies in their power, they will force men to comply with their ideas of what is right. This is what the Jews did in the days of Christ, and what the church has done ever since, whenever she has lost the grace of Christ. Finding herself destitute of the power of love, she has reached out for the strong arm of the state to enforce her dogmas and execute her decrees. Here is the secret of all religious laws that have ever been enacted and the secret of all persecution from the days of Abel to our own time. Christ does not drive, but draws men unto him. The only compulsion which he employs is the constraint of love. When the church begins to seek for the support of secular power, it is evident that she is devoid of the power of Christ, the constraint of divine love. Do we see the church today seeking the power of the state to enact certain laws, to get the right judges, to overturn certain um, statutes that have been passed in this country or laws that have been established? Do we see the church actively working this way? Why? Do you see that as evidence that it's devoid the love of Christ? This is not denominational. This is Christianity. Yeah. Do we see it? I see it. Well, we're over time, so I'm going to win. So I had a few more interesting things uh, uh, and applications from our lesson. I encourage you to go ahead and, and read the notes and some, some difficult, there's some more difficult thought-teasing questions in our notes. Let's go ahead and close our prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are the creator, designer, builder of reality. Help our, our minds comprehend more fully your laws and how they work and change our hearts to, to write your law on our hearts and minds that we can live in harmony with how you have designed reality to work, that we can speak truth but in love and be gracious and kind, leaving other people free without using the, the, the coercive pressures of compulsion to try to make people live the way we think they should live but converting them over, that they want to live in harmony with your designs, Lord. 
and open the avenues this message can go forward, that more harvesters will come to the field. We pray in your holy name. Amen.